Good morning and welcome to the Reliably Well podcast, a podcast for medical professionals looking for insight into ways to be more effective for their patients and communities by making sure they are caring for themselves first and thriving in their lives. Welcome to the Reliably Well podcast. My name is Sam Peters and I'm the co-host along with Dr. Johnsey and Dr. Lovely. And we're here today to talk about financial wellness. So I, I heard about a physician who had back taxes in more than $70,000. The IRS was, was uh, trying to, um, I guess, seek him out and get three years worth of back taxes. He, he'd been working for probably 30 years. He started working some moonlighting shifts. He had high blood pressure because of this, some insomnia. And I think that kind of snapshot of, of that kind of story kind of makes it clear that finances have a pretty significant import on our wellness. Uh, one study showed that high debt is associated with symptoms of burnout. So let's talk about finances. So Dr. Johnson, what is the first step towards financial literacy? Yeah, I think before I answer that question, uh, your um, story there is, I've heard far worse stories uh, than that, Um, uh, honestly. Shocking sometimes the number of high six-figure income earners that are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, You know, it's just kind of shocking um, sometimes when, when you realize, uh, some of those things, I, I remember one of my, um, uh, mentors in residency talking about how great the practice of emergency medicine was, uh, kind of in our previous episode, we kind of talked about some of the, the, um, system issues. You could be practicing in a hospital that has, that's dysfunctional and it's, um, uh, you know, it can, as Dr. Lovely talked about, cause this moral injury um, to you. And what his point was, was emergency medicine is the greatest field because if you're working at some place that's real dysfunctional, you can just pick up and go somewhere else. We don't have this practice of patients that we have to worry about selling or you know finding somebody to take over or something or abandoning these patients. We can just move to the next town over or the next state over or whatever and find a better location for ourselves. But when we get trapped financially, we lose one of the one of the things that a lot of folks got drawn to. Now, I, I don't think the average EM doc just bounces around year to year from place to place uh, always, just because there are other things. We got kids and other stuff. But if you're trapped, if you're stuck because you owe the IRS and you can't get a loan for uh, a house somewhere else, or you you know you can't you can't go one month without a paycheck because you know everything that comes in goes out just to keep the wolves away, man, that's a bad place to be. I don't care if MD or DO is after your name or you don't have any letters after your name. That's that's one of those things that's frightening for anybody. Um, and especially if you've got other folks that live under the same roof with you to be thinking about, you know, what you may be subjecting them to. That can be crushing um, to folks. So um, I think that the financial literacy is a huge thing that, um, that we need to, again, be proactive in if we're going to be proactive in our own wellness. Um, 
I think that the first failure of most high income earners is um, no matter what I do, I can always earn my way out of it. And two, if I'm earning so much money, I must know how to do this financial stuff. Um, <coughs> and those are, those are two huge myths um, that if you believe them, you will wind up in a very bad place. So I think, you know, what's the, uh, the um, uh, Spider-Man's uncle uh, with, with great ability comes great responsibility uh, line uh, in that movie? And, and I think if we have a great ability to earn an income, well, we have a responsibility to, earn, to understand how to use that power effectively for our benefit, for our family's benefit, and for the benefit of our community and, you know, extended um, uh, people that, that, that we run into. Um, and nothing is worse than looking back on 10 or 20 years of, of, of your working life and have nothing to show for it but, you know, a pile of, of debt that you owe. So before people start earning that great income, um, or if they've already started earning it and they haven't done it, the first thing that that I think every uh, person in that situation owes themselves and those around them is to educate themselves. Um, and I think the White Coat Investor has some great books that that are very easy to understand um, and very good concepts to base um, decisions that you have to make upon. I think Dave Ramsey does a great job with breaking down some financial concepts. Uh, there for a more general audience and not necessarily a high income earner uh, audience, but again, not necessarily talking about having a, a detailed plan of investing in all, uh, but more having an understanding. Um, and one thing that, that Dave reiterates over and over again is that whatever choice you make um, in using your money, you need to understand those things. So you kind of um, prompted that idea of advisors or no advisors. I think there are some folks who really like it and enjoy, I want to move my money from here to there, and I understand a little bit more about this fund than that fund, um, and, and, and they want to be, you know, mucking with all of the, keeping up with the statements and doing the transition. And there's some people who want to be a little bit, have a little step back. But regardless of whichever situation you find yourself in, you should not be the guy who just, I want to know that I got plenty of money. You do whatever you need to with it. You need to be engaged and you need to understand what's going on. And until you get educated, you don't know the questions to ask an advisor or a planner or a fiduciary uh, to, to be able to make sure that they're doing what it is that you want. You're not going to be able to understand the statement that you get back from your mutual fund to understand how much money they took out of what you sent them um, and if it makes sense or not. So I think you owe it uh, to your um, to all of those years that you spent to be able to get to a position where you can earn a very nice income to be able to know the, the language of finances. Um, and until you understand that, you're just going to hear people say um, what you ought to do, and it's really going to be what you ought to do because it's beneficial to them. 
um, uh, and, and you're not going to know whether that is also beneficial to you or it's just beneficial to them. And I've certainly been somebody who's, who's made some mistakes before and invested some things that were okay that, that I didn't really understand and, and um, have gotten more and more education as I've gone on. So I think that's the first thing. Buy some books and read them. Um, and then start to make your own decisions. And if you want a financial advisor, um, make sure that you ask them a lot of difficult questions. Because no matter what the situation is, they are working for you. And if they aren't willing to answer those questions and to have the heart of a teacher to explain things in detail and not just say, no, 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 you don't need to worry about that. This is what you need, don't, you know, know that that you're getting what you're paying for because no matter what they are earning money to do this uh, they don't do it out of the goodness of their heart and they shouldn't um, they've spent some time to to learn what they're doing but you need to know that again they just have your best interest and you'll never know it if you're not educated yeah that's really good so get get some books kind of learn the logic of finances yourself understand the formulas and then and then go to go to an advisor for a consult or yeah. So I, I, you know, job interviews is what I think it really is. Don't don't have it like I mean, you need to interview that person and know that that they are what you're wanting out of them if that's what you're wanting. Again, there's some people, and you don't have to have an advisor. You can do these things by themselves. And there's some people, and I, Dr. Lovely may be one of those guys who is really they just like. In, in there's obviously some 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 savings that comes from that, um, but there's some time that goes into that as well uh, to be able to manage those things. So it's not without a trade-off. But there are some folks who really enjoy that aspect of it. And so if you're one of those people who really enjoys, let me do that. Let me get my spreadsheets together and let me see what everything is. Then go for it. And the white coat investor can tell you a lot of things. Now again, I, I don't necessarily agree with 100% of his perspective, but he does a great job of educating. And, and I think I don't think anybody can say anything um, negative uh, about that. I think um, in finances, everybody has their opinion. And we as physicians tend to be fairly dogmatic with our opinions. Um, and so be careful when you listen to your buddy who you work with or who you went to med school with when they're very positive and dogmatic about this thing's what you ought to be doing with your money, it may be, but you need to understand it yourselves. I think that's the biggest thing. So if you're one of those people who wants to do it themselves, go down the White Coat Investor. And again, there are other resources out there. And he even suggests other books and other authors and uh, things that can be uh, helpful and suggest if you want to go down the financial advisor pathway some ideas and, and aspects and I think they're a good approach if that's what you're going to. If you're somebody who says, you know, I just don't want to get bogged down in all the details of what's going on, then then a financial advisor who again has the heart of a teacher, who will explain things, who passes all your sniff tests uh, of what's going on and tells you very openly how they're being paid. The best ones, I think, again, the way the, the white coat investor suggests are the people who you're paying a set fee to um, but I think you can find good people who are still making some commission off of, of what's going on. They just need to be upfront and honest with you that they're telling you, hey, this is what I'm making off of this. And, and again, if it seems reasonable, great. If it doesn't, then you choose 
either somebody else or something else as your uh, investment strategy. But you got to be knowledgeable. And you got to, I mean, again, you just got to ask the same sort of questions as you would if you're going into your, your you know, job interview or you're interviewing somebody to take care of your kids. You're not just going to say, okay, well, you look nice and I'll trust you with my kids. Uh, you know, you shouldn't trust them with all the finances that you've worked hard to be able to have. You need to, you need to pry and prod and, and figure out if they make sense and get some references and all those sorts of things. Dr. Lovely, financial. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Uh, I think it's important to start with a perspective that you're one of the richest people in the richest country on earth. If you're having a lot of struggles and challenges financially, there's probably an inventory you need to take and see where the breakdown is. Uh, as far as the beginnings of understanding, I think you have to understand your own inflows and outflows. Uh, these days, it's so easy. I mean, your credit card or your banking statement, look at it every month and see what's outflowing. Most of them already break it down for you. So you don't have to have your own Excel spreadsheets. Just know where your money's going and why. And then uh, have some honest conversations like, is it reasonable for me to be paying 70000 a year for college for my kid right now? Is that uh, a ma- is that major in uh, biochemistry worth it? Or should they do a couple years of commute? Like, what's the actual, what's the fair price for the things that I'm buying? Um, how much interest am I paying on my house? I mean, there's some things that you should understand where your money is going to. Um, but that's all like, uh, I think Joe did the basic introduction. You got to understand what's coming in and out. And you need to understand basic Dan- Dave Ramsey style uh, um, finance, which is a very basic level. It's don't spend more than you make and uh, just be reasonable with what you're doing. Then the next level, I think, is white coat investor kind of stuff or Ben Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor, that Warren Buffett always recommends is a good place. Um, anywhere like that are the next places to go on your own. Um, the question then is, uh, do I hire a financial advisor or not? As a high-income earner, I think the question comes down to there's two things we have to do well. Uh, one is uh, tax protection. Make sure that you're sheltering, uh, avoiding as much taxes on the front end as you uh, are legally should be. Uh, and that's the place that I think financial advisors have their most value. And that's the only place I'll probably miss out on a little bit of tax savings early on. A small amount, but a little bit. Doing it on my own, I do miss a little bit there because I don't want to deal with the extra paperwork because I am doing it all independently. The place what you have to watch with financial advisors is uh, compounded interest is amazing. And if uh, a financial advisor is taking 2% annually of your compounded interest, I mean, if you can give me half a percent, I'll work incredibly hard to save a half a percent of annual compounded gain over the next 30 years. So the way that financial advisors often are paid is such that you don't realize how much you're going to pay over 30 years. And you look back and I paid that guy $4 million out of the 15 million that I made in my life or whatever. It's like, I could have, if I had just decreased uh, Boggleheads, uh, uh, the guy that created Vanguard, it was all about low cost uh, uh, um, index funds. So if you just buy a part of the, not just even, you know, you can buy an index fund for the United States economy or for the world economy, and you're going to grow, your money's going to grow with the rate of the world economy, no matter what you do. So if you can just buy a transaction of that and live on it, uh, the hard part becomes the emotional part where you want to come in there and touch it. So one of my rules is, once I've invested in something, I don't move it again. I don't reallocate. It's there, and I don't get to judge it again. That's where it is. And uh, one of uh, the intelligent investors, one of the things they tells you is 10% of your money you're allowed to invest on your own and things that you think are fun, but 90% needs to be handled by index fund or professionally, something that's outside of your normal scope. But again, I think they're great. I think Joe's right. There are great financial advisors out there that do it for the right reasons and for reasonable fees. 
but you do need to be uh, educated enough to understand who you're dealing with and what they are making off of it. And there's absolutely a reasonable thing to pay at the uh, uh, amount of money wearing. There's a reasonable amount to pay for somebody to help you make sure you do it correctly. Because, I mean, you are an expert in one independent area, and there are people that are way better at this than you. So unless you're really interested in it, there's no reason to put 100 hours into it. You can put a good 10 or 15 hours, understand it solidly, but don't go with the first broker you go to who wants to sell you some kind of weird life insurance plan on your kids. That's probably not the place you want to be. So make sure you go to a few people or at least talk to somebody you trust. Uh, there are doctors I trust. Like if Joe said, look, this guy charges a reasonable fee, I would be comfortable as a new doctor going to the guy that Joe says charges a reasonable fee. Now, but you need to, it needs to be somebody that you trust with your, with your kids. Good, good. I know uh, that book, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, he talks about, I think he was talking about clinicians particularly. He was saying they're one skill away from being wealthy. Um, and I just think that was good. Um, I, I think that clinicians work very hard to learn one skill really well. They, they might confuse themselves, you know, confuse with knowing one discipline very well with knowing all disciplines really well. And that is, uh, that's dangerous. Um, so I, I like that. So talking about planning your future, Proverbs thirteen eleven it says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Um, Dr. Lovely, let's talk about planning finances. I grew up during the poker boom. I don't know if you guys remember that, where poker became really popular there for a while. And so I would watch the high stakes games online. And there were a few guys that you love to watch because they would come from a very small amount of money up to millions back to zero, like over and over again. Uh, there was a few names I, could, I can remember. Isladur is a guy that we'd watch online all the time. So this guy would, it was just that, the super high risk, high reward guys. And they would blow out to millions and then back down to destitute trying to borrow money in the casino like the next day. And then you have guys like my buddy who slowly grinded it out over years and years and he retired after making six or seven million and nobody knows his name. So, I mean, those are the kind of, that's what you're talking about. The guy that slowly collects it versus the guy that booms it out. Um, and I think that's very interesting. I think the same thing's true for doctors. There's plenty of get rich quick schemes that we can invest in that are uh, going to snatch up our money just as fast as anybody else's. And the reality is that if you can get a solid, as much money as we make, if you can get any solid reasonable return, year over year without losing money and maintaining a reasonable in and out, uh, there's no reason you can't retire in a very reasonable period of time. If you look at the white coat investor, there's this whole idea of financial independence, retire early. There's no reason that a, a doctor, an ER doctor graduating at 30 couldn't theoretically be financially independent and uh, uh, eligible to just quit retire at any time by the time they're 40 if they maintained a very reasonable lifestyle. I mean, that's probably not what everybody wants to do. I don't know many people going into medicine because they want to do it for 10 years, but you should understand that concept that uh, with adequate savings, and if you live like an accountant as opposed to uh, a rock star, then in 10 years, you could theoretically be done working for the rest of your life. And as far as personal wellness, that financial backstop makes your job a lot more fun when you're not having to come in because you have bills to pay, but you get to come in because you want to see some people and hang out with your friends. Yeah, I like that. So you talked about someone out of residency could work for maybe 10 years and be financially independent and be able to retire. Um, I know that, uh, and I'm sure you, you, you guys know, how expensive med school is. Dr. Johnsey, when someone gets out of residency, what is your advice? It's probably late. 
in, in making your plan, um, <laughs> but it's not too late. Um, and so I, I do think that, again, a lot of people feel like, well, once I become a high-income earner, I can make up for whatever mistakes that I'm making now. And I think there are a lot of people um, who uh, wind up going deeply in debt, max out loans to uh, the fullest of their ability in uh, undergraduate, in, in medical school, uh, because, how, oh, this school has this better reputation or they've got a residency and whatever uh, that I think maybe that's what I want to do. Um, and I, from my experience, it makes no difference uh, where you get that degree from uh, as to what your job opportunity is going to be down the road. Um, it, it really matters how hard you want to work at each stage of your educational journey. Um, and so if, if, if you're um, top 10 in your class, you can do whatever residency you want to do and you may have to choose some geography from time to time, depending on what it is you, you want to do. But um, you'll get whatever job that you want to get and whatever residency you want to get if you work hard enough at what it is you're doing, no matter where you go to school. There might be a one-time unique example where it doesn't work out that way, but I would say it's going to be really rare. If you don't want to work that hard during you know, different levels of your education, then it may be more challenging to get to that point where you want to. But I mean, I, I know people who were in the bottom third of my med school class. And when I was graduating, orthopedics was the top thing. It probably still is, uh, or one of the top ones. Um, and guy had to, you know, do some research and some other stuff. But, you know, after a couple of years of working hard after medical school, he got the residency that he wanted. So I, I think anybody can do what it is they want to do. It's just how much are you willing to pay? So um, don't don't go for, again, another myth that, hey, the more I pay for this prestigious um, piece of parchment, then that's going to open doors for me that um, the state institution won't open for me. I don't I, I completely don't believe it. And I've I've seen too many examples uh, to know uh, that the doors will open no matter what name is on your uh, degree. Um, and it starts again when your kids go to school, too. Uh, yeah. Peter Thiel, has, he's a big advocate. He went to Harvard, and he talks about how the difference in the amount, how much extra it costs to go to Harvard versus a state school. If you just invest that amount, that extra 5 or 10% annual average earn you make coming out of Harvard, because you do get a little bit of a, a long-term increase bump, income increase bump coming out of uh, Harvard or Yale versus a state school. But it's not as much as the interest that would be earned if over the money you saved from going to that more expensive college. Uh, and medicine is a completely different world. This is not law school where you need to be T10. When I'm hiring a doctor, I don't care where they went to medical school. I want to know what's the Prescani, how well do they interact with people. And you can be at the bottom of your class in medical school and be excellent uh, uh, communicator. And that's what I want to know. Uh, have, it's rare to meet an emergency medicine trained doctor that's not excellent at emergency medicine. What is uh, much more hard to find is somebody that's an excellent communicator and excellent people. And that has nothing to do with where you went to school or where you were on your rank list. And when I'm entered, if I, I would rank people based on the press Ganey score on hiring new hires. I mean, that's, that, that's a legitimate uh, indicator on how well, now you do have to account for each individual facility. So you have to take the people from, you know, if you work in a hospital that has two hour waits, you have to compare yourself relative to other people at that hospital not people coming from uh, a hospital in that way. But, but yeah, you're right. If, yeah. He, if he's the guy who's the, the, the top two or three of, of his group at his hospital, 
uh, in press game. You're right. He's gonna he's gonna survive and do well at any institution they wind up going to. And I think we'll see more and more of hiring based on skill base. So the, the top ten percent of UAB or Harvard or whatever LSU any. ER program, the top 10% is excellent. And the same is true for the bottom 10%. At any program, no matter how big the name is, the bottom 10% is not very good, and that's not who you want to hire. Because it's usually those social issues. It's not that they can't pass the test. It's they have some social blocks to what it is they're trying to do. So I think to, to the, your, your question on finances is wherever you are, as soon as you make the uh, – you, you, you get some goal for your career – Get some plan for your finances to get there. You you wouldn't you know you wouldn't start a business and not have a, a, a financial plan for how that business is going to work. Every business you're going to go into debt to begin with, and then you're going to have this plan of how you're going to come back out of that uh, um, uh, debt into into you know, positive territory and your life should be no different when you're, if you are going to have to go into debt uh, to get uh, an educational goal that you need to, um, needs to be planned and thought out. So if you're coming out of residency, you've already assumed this debt. Um, and I, I think the majority of folks that come out of medical school have some debt. Hopefully it's not the half a million dollars that I'm hearing a common, commonly thrown around. But if it is, you will have a chance to earn a very high income um, and be able to overcome that negative that you walk out with. The real difference between being shackled for decades by that debt or being having the freedom to, to be flexible and do those things that you want to do is how you approach the first two or three or five years after residency. Um, and so if you approach that as now I make $250,000, $500,000 a year, so let me adjust my lifestyle towards that, then you will forever be shackled by that debt and all the other debt that you wind up assuming in those first five years of your career. But if you make that uh, choice to, to plan um, to, to get back to kind of a level footing over those first two, three, five years of your career, then you'll have the flexibility to retire early if you want to, um, to, um, you know, choose how much uh, in, in, in exotic the education you want your kids to have. Uh, you'll have so many more um, opportunities. Uh, on the um, maybe less serious side of it, I guess the other thing that I, I learned from a guy who was working well into his um, 70s, um, one time uh, he said, uh, uh, and I was just coming out of uh, residency, he said the best advice he had was to not have more than one spouse uh, in, your, in your life. Uh, I, think, I think, you know, ex-spouses and, and lots of, of kids um, impact um, the, the cost of living that you wind up having. So making good choices there. And again, it may be too late uh, if you're coming out of residency to, uh, uh, to make the right choice. But I think to our bigger message of wellness, make sure that you're investing in those relationships so they don't sour because they'll have a, a really negative uh, consequence on your, on your financial wellness pillar uh, if you don't pay um, 
into them and support them uh, and invest in those things uh, as well. So again, have a good plan, I think, is the, is the biggest thing. And, and that's what you, whether you're going to do it on your own or you're going to get an advisor, that's what you have to determine. You have to figure out, okay, what is my goal? Is it to live in the biggest house in town? Is it to travel the world? Is it to retire at 40? Uh, is it to send my kids to Harvard? Whatever those goals are, you got to put those down. you got to decide those things early on. And then you've got to work your plan. Um, and if you know you're on a plan, even if, you know, hey, the numbers are still red right now or I'm not where I want to be, at least if you're working your plan and you see that the, the trajectory um, is in the direction that you want, that that gives me a lot of comfort when I'm, you know, sitting down and on a uh, every quarter or, or annual basis and kind of looking back and saying, Okay, where am I, and and is it on the the glide path of where I want to be? And if I know that I am, even if you know, hey, the stock market took a took a beating uh, this last quarter, I still know that that I'm I'm progressing on to where uh, I want to be. I'm staying on my plan. I'm I'm not spending every dime that I have or more. Um, I'm I'm making progress to where I want to be. And I think that's uh, again one of those things that helps to build up some wellness points in us as opposed to you know kind of our physical health we can only be you know sort of so healthy um but i think there's a big um area of wellness that we can have and there's tons of things we can do to to promote self-wellness uh to to coin a new term there uh in in having a good financial plan and working that plan is one of those things that i think really boosts up um, that that internal self wellness uh, and helps us to endure some other things, uh, or it can be the thing that really detracts a whole bunch of um, you know thinking of the video game idea, a whole bunch of those health points away from us to where we're not able to um, endure that next uh, that next battle that we have to go into. One of the most common causes of divorce is not managing your finances well. So okay. it all it'll roll itself into one if you don't manage it up front well. I came out of school between me and my wife with three hundred thousand dollars in debt. One of the most important things is that you make the, your financial plan in conjunction with your spouse. And there's you know my wife was a little frustrated when we moved to Tuscaloosa. We looked at houses from a hundred thousand to seven hundred thousand. Obviously, seven hundred thousand dollar houses are nicer. We ended up settling on a brand new built house at right in the two hundred thousand dollar range. And now after we moved in, she was really proud of herself for, uh, and me too, you, be, you become, have some pride in being conservative and living that conservative lifestyle. There's some pride in that. And you feel proud when you make those decisions, even though, uh, you know, it can be a little bit like all, when we were looking around, she had definitely had some angst when we'd go from this side of town to this side of town. And she's like, what are you doing jerking me all over? But it's like, let's see, let's see where we fit, what's best for us and make a plan together and then take pride in what you've done and what you're, and where you are in your plan. I think that was a really interesting thing that you you said there, uh, Blake, when you talked about the pride that you felt after making that decision. Because I think, again, for high-income earners, there is so much inertia behind, oh, you must buy this much. Uh, You must drive this kind of – I mean, you pull into the doctor's parking lot, you don't – I drove my med school car for 13 years uh, until it quit one drive down to work, and I was two hours late for my shift – uh, trying to get another ride. Um, 
I drove that in, you know, and, and nobody wanted to park next to me because they were not sure who was parking in the doctor's parking lot. But I drove that with a kind of a, it, it, you know, I hate to use the word proud, but but it did make me feel good that I was, again, still denying myself. I didn't have to have um, whatever that emblem was and the payment or the lease or whatever that went along with it. Uh, it was something that made you feel good about choices that you're making because, you know what? Every car gets a dent in it. They all stuff wears out on them, and man, it's it's uh, it's okay if you if you put off buying that uh, uh, German uh, automobile for a little bit. To uh, uh, and it and it makes you feel good when you put some sweat equity into that house, and you know, lo and behold, you do decide to upgrade in five years or something. And you know what? It's worth a lot more than what you went into it with, and you've. You know, you're 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 able to to upgrade without doubling your debt or something else uh, like that when you when you and the next house you can buy can be much broader because you've earned money and saved interest all this all time long. But you're right, the nurses there was at first even my my uncle and the the uh, person that went to look at houses with us our uh, realtor that gets a cut. Yeah, the realtor they were all really kind of taken aback at first, but then in the long term. uh, the long term, it starts to make sense, and they recognize, like, okay, well, then that makes sense for the long term financial health of where you're going. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, but this it's is, interesting. This is a, yeah, I think a great discussion, much needed. Live within your means. Um, I, I want to try to talk about somewhat of a formula because I know that a lot of people, and I forget what the statistic is, but people think that they're actually living within their means. I know that book, um, The Millionaire Next Door he went around and he was going to interview a lot of um, millionaires and he went to the nice neighborhoods. He found out that a lot of those people in the nice neighborhoods were not millionaires. Mm -hmm. They were living below their means. Uh, Money was coming in from, I don't know, maybe parents. And he was very shocked. But a lot of them reported that they lived within their means. And I think it is a relative term. And I want to try to anchor down somewhat of a uh, a formula somewhat, and I'm going to ask Dr. Lovely, what, what does live with living within your means mean? What, what does it look like? Um, oh, I do want to caveat one thing from what we were talking about earlier. Uh, there's, I think there's a, also a, an appropriate splurge uh, area that people can use. And there's some people that are really into cars. If cars is a thing you want to splurge on, I think as long as you put it in your budget, that's perfectly appropriate as long as you understand where your money's going and why. So I don't want to judge somebody because they are really into cars just because I don't care about cars and I drive, you know, a Kia Forte. That's fine for me. That fits what I need. I just need a phone that has good Bluetooth so I can listen to my books. That's all I want. Everybody has different needs. Pick what you like. I like, I got a drone that's, you know, whatever, $2,000. I really like drones. That's my fun little gadget. Um, Living with your means, what, how, it is different for everybody. It's hard to, it's hard to do. I try to live on a third of my income. Whatever my income is, I live on a third of it. A third of it goes to taxes, and it usually ends up being less than that, so that all goes to savings. So a third to me, a third to savings, and a third to uh, taxes is my own personal breakdown. How uh, that's a good that's a good uh, formula for financial independence, retired early. If you can put a third away each month, regardless of how much you make, if you're living on that third and putting a third away, you get to financial independence fairly rapidly. Doctor Johnson, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, again, within your means means that you have decided something. Um, and so uh, Blake's right. If you, if you want to, you, you, you have to build your budget, though, and you have to see that you are living within that budgetary uh, decision because your banker, 
and, and I love my banker, um, but your banker will say yes way beyond when your budget says mm. no or when your plan uh, is being broken. They, they don't know your plan. They don't know. So a lot of people are going to say yes. The, the car dealer is always going to say yes to you. If there's any way they can fit you into a payment, they're going to say yes to you um, because they're looking at it from their perspective and not from yours. So you have to know what your means are. And the only way to know what your means are is to have something that is written down, that is a plan, that is a budget, that tells you what your means are. And I'd say hour for hour, emergency medicine is arguably one of the most stressful jobs in existence. Uh, we work in a job that is, we've, we have built it around working really hard for a short period of time and making as much amount of money in that short period of time as you can. But you are, you're in the middle of a lot of decisions and life making decisions uh, that whole time and you're crushed there. So every time you spend money, you're saying, I need that many hours a month. So how many hours can you live in that pressure cooker? And uh, I think a lot of what we're working to do is loosen that pressure cooker up, but it's always going to be the merch department and it's always going to be a stressful place to be. So yeah, you can commit yourself to 180 hours a month, every month, the rest of your life. But that's how you lead yourself into burnout is you get three or four months at 180 hours and realize I can't be in a pressure cooker that long. There's not enough downtime for me to, uh, get back. I'm not resilient enough to work 180. I need to work 140 and have that extra 40 hours to get that stress relief. So I'm ready to go back and be the best doctor I can. Great. So let's talk about one, one more practical thing. As we conclude this episode, tracking your spending, I hear is so important, imperative. I was talking to our CFO at Relias, uh, Mitchell Cox, and he was saying just that's the very, almost the first step towards financial independence or uh, financial literacy, maybe not financial literacy, but financial independence. And um, tracking your spending, you know, I know here at Relias, one of our, our, as I understand it, one of our pieces of philosophy is we manage what we monitor, right? So as long as you're monitoring it, you're going to pay attention a little bit more to it. Um, so what, what is a, a platform, either Dr. Lovely or Dr. Johnson, that you use to track your spending? Maybe uh, Dr. Lovely first. I'll give you mine first, just because when I first came out, I got one credit card, uh, and I used American Express. There's a lot of credit cards that have a little better returns, but they tracked what I was spending really well, and it had a great app. So I started with American Express, and since then, I've had my finances become more complicated. I had the, the Apple card and the Amazon's card, and then two bank accounts. And I just at some point, uh, really monthly, whenever I do my, I do have one day where I after after paycheck, where I break out my income into the different spots. I go through and look at what my breakdown of spending that was and usually ends up being disproportionately toward food. And that's what I should, uh, usually scale back on is eating out. Okay. Dr. Chauncey. Uh, I, I have, uh, used a lot of different things. I started out with just a Excel spreadsheet, um, have, uh, uh, Larry Burkett had a program years ago that, that I used until I quit, uh, uh, servicing it. You need a budget. Y N A B. Um, dot com I think is uh, very user friendly. It's um, it will pull expenses from a lot of different accounts to uh, fill into your budget, um, and it allows for multiple uh, entry points. So both you and your spouse uh, can enter those uh, very seamlessly from your phone and other uh, sorts of ways to to keep from uh, not accounting for different expenses. And then you can visually see. 
I'm on my budget this month or I'm over my budget in this category or something else uh, very, very clearly. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a real useful tool. Uh, I think it's maybe 50 or 75 bucks a year subscription, so it's not, not that much. Um, and it makes it real easy to, to do that and pull reports and other sorts of things uh, pretty, pretty uh, quickly without a lot of uh, um, sophistication. Me and my important come tax time to be able to look back and see where because I mean I, I buy all kinds of books and stuff that are certainly work related expenses that if you don't have somewhere you've kept up with it at the end of the year you'll you'll miss out on like I said protecting your your appropriate tax gains is one of the most important things you can do as a hire absolutely yeah it's, it's I do have one other thing to add on I've noticed uh, the physicians that I I know and love they it's not that they're frivolous people it's that as they get more wealthy the umbrella of people they take care of grows. And I, I, feel, I see my, my own umbrella growing uh, on a yearly basis. I realize I'm picking up more and more people under my umbrella. So I understand how Monkle in his 60s has an umbrella of 20 or 30 people that have some reliance on him financially. And it's okay to go through that umbrella and have, I sit down with my brother, me and him have, uh, you know, honest talks about, look, you know, every time you spend a dollar, that's me in the department working for that dollar. So, I mean, I'm fine with you, you know, you have to have those conversations with each person under your umbrella because they don't necessarily, they don't understand. Sometimes that's free money to these people and uh, they love you. You're taking care of them. So don't feel uncomfortable about, about analyzing your umbrella and talking to people under, they're not going to get mad at you. They rely on you heavily and you're taking care of a lot of people, but don't burn yourself out uh, just so so-and-so can go to Yale this year. Like they'll be fine. Yeah. But just like, you know, uh, parenting isn't for wimps. Um, budgeting isn't for those people who don't want to have difficult conversations sometimes or, or, or at least challenging conversations that, you know, you, you, you need to be, you need to be thoughtful and, and those kind of conversations help to deepen relationships. I think if you really have them as opposed to harboring, you know, some of the bad feelings about, Oh, such and such did whatever, uh, you know, between spouses and things like that, especially those things can happen if you don't wind up having those those good conversations that make sense. Because, as you said, sometimes people don't realize um, what what is being spent or, or, or what that says to um, maybe the person who is having to go outside the home to earn um, an income versus working within the home. They, they don't uh, realize, uh, you know, some of those those trade-offs that are happening if you haven't had those discussions. Yeah, you got to be raw and emotionally transparent because you don't want to come off as a jerk either. Like, hey, you spent so much money. It's, hey, look, here's the reality. Here's my budget. Here's how much I spend. It's like, what's a fair? What should we do? But you do got to be ready to just emotionally come back. There's been many times I've called my brother back about a number of stuff. And like, look, man, this is this is how I was feeling. I'm sorry if I came off a different way. I just, you know, it, it, we all have emotional reactions, and sure, yep, just got to make sure you're being being honest. We, we've Honestly, had a great sorry. conversation about finances. I, I think this is one of the episodes that we're going to have a lot more on in the future. I know finances is, is a great subject to talk about, especially in the, the medicine world. Um, thank you, Dr. Johnsey and Dr. Lovely for jumping on. Please hit subscribe. Uh, if you enjoyed hearing us talk about uh, wellness and, and the financial pillar of wellness. And again, my name is Sam Peters and I'm the co-host. Until next time, be well.